I want you to imagine with me that you and a friend have uh, tickets um, to go to a major movie, a major movie that's called God's Story. But because of the traffic and some bad planning on your part, you end up arriving later than um, uh, you wanted to at the theater. In fact, you're so late that you've missed the first half of the movie, um, which covers the Old Testament part of God's story. And although you know really nothing of the Old Testament, uh, you figured that you will stay anyway because... I mean, you're going to be able to catch the last half of this wonderful movie you've heard so much about, raving reviews. And isn't the last half supposed to be about the New Testament? And isn't the New Testament supposed to be the best part anyway? <laughs> and as you come in, uh, you see on the screen a, a manger scene. You know, we're all familiar with that, uh, that scene. It's a major scene with a newborn child that's in focus, and as the scene unfolds, you catch this idea that this is not just some ordinary child. No, this child, in fact, was born, you hear it said, of a, of a virgin, and this child was uh, announced by an angel to be the son of God. And then you notice a wife who's sitting right in front of you, and uh, she nudges her husband <laughs> And you overhear her whisper loud enough, uh, you overhear her say, this is it. She says this to her husband. This is it. He, he will be the one who was promised. I, I promise you. He, you wait and, and see. It will all center on him. And he will be the answer to the problem. But see, you've just arrived. And you really don't know what the problem is. And when you hear that he is the son of God, well, <laughs> you're not even really sure what that means because you don't know who God is. And when you hear that he will save his uh, people, you don't know who his people are and why they would need any saving. <laughs> Having missed the first half of the movie, you struggle to grasp what this story is all about. You don't know what the problems are, and you don't know uh, the, the promise. So you're not sure why this movie is making such a big deal about this little baby who was lying in a barn surrounded by a few animals. <laughs> now, I give you that imaginary scenario because in reality, I think there is a, we, we live in a world um, where that's precisely the situation uh, that we encounter today. People hear about Jesus, but they don't really understand um, what the big deal is because, see, they don't know the whole story. They don't know God's story. This fall, we're talking about our five extraordinary um, norms here at, at First Free. Uh, a couple weeks ago at Welcome Home Sunday, we uh, highlighted the extraordinary norm uh, to re uh, that uh, every Christ follower should be uh, growing in their ability to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus Christ. Then last week, we talked about the extraordinary norm that every Christ follower should be building relationships with other Christ followers that have a family feel to it. And this week, we're focusing on the extraordinary norm that we are all shaped by God's story so that we can share it with others. 
shaped by God's story so we can share God's story with others. This morning, what I want to do in order to highlight that extraordinary norm is I want us to remind us what God's story is all about. So we're going to look through four key events in God's good news story. Four hinge moments in the Bible's narrative, uh, moments that are essential for us to know in order to share God's story. Now, a paraphrasing, of course, from Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, what we're going to do is we're going to begin at the very beginning because we realize that's a very good place to start. <laughs> and so we begin with creation. That's the first key event, creation, right? The very first uh, verse in the Bible Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, simply says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That statement, I got to tell you, that's one of the most profound statements ever written. God's story begins with God just kind of walking out on the stage and announcing himself. He starts off with the words, in the beginning, God. And God says, listen, I want you to know Um, that I am here, and I want you to know what I'm like, and I I want you to know what I have to say to you. And here in this very first sentence, God tells us some pretty profound things about who he is. For example, he he tells us that he is self-existent. You've all heard about the uh, law of cause and effect, right? Law of cause and effect. Um, which says that every effect must have an adequate cause. Um, The reason you can hear my voice so clearly is because of the sound system that we have here. The effect is a loud voice. The cause is the sound system. Everything has a cause, except for God. When we read, in the beginning, God, (laughs) God is revealing to us that he had no origins. He is the ultimate cause and is himself uncaused. You say, well, Sutton, so what? Well, what that means is that God is unknowable except for what he has chosen to reveal to us um, about himself. And he also, it also tells us that God is not answerable to anyone, especially us, <laughs> as much as we want to sometimes accuse him of that. Another thing God tells us about himself in this very first verse is that he is the creator. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew language, uh, the language of the Old Testament, there was no word for universe. So that phrase, heavens and earth, are... uh, their way of saying all things. So it's telling us God created all things. See, God's story is not only begins with God introducing himself, but it also begins, I got to tell you, by explaining who we are. Because a few verses later, here in Genesis chapter 1, we read this, where God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is not just the creator. Here's the point. God is our creator, your creator, my creator. (laughs) 
And because we are made in God's image, we are able to have a relationship with God. Incredible. God feels for humankind. He identifies with us. He, he grieves with us and intervenes in history to display his, his love for humankind because men and women have been made in the image of God. In the third chapter of Genesis, we read this. Then they heard, talking about Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Theologians call this a theophany, an appearance of God, a visible God in visible form. See, God is invisible and eternal. But right here in the very beginning of the Bible story, what we learn is that we learn that God wants to make himself known to us. So he takes on a visible form. Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God. Incredible, right? I mean, they asked him questions and enjoyed conversations with God Almighty. Can you imagine what it must have been like? I mean, God asked Adam, so Adam, what did you do today? (laughs) God uh, asked Eve, Eve, hey, what's on your mind, Eve? I mean, God's personal and he cares. The man and woman, they have a relationship with God. Here, catch this, in the very beginning of God's story, God walks out on the stage and he announces who he is. He is self-existent and he is the creator. But more importantly, he wants us to know that he is our creator. And he wants a relationship with us. From the very beginning of God's story, from the very, very beginning, God speaks his love to us. I mean, we're the apple of his eye. And that's what he wants to tell us. That's what he wants us to know. That's what this story is all about. On February 7th, 1885, Sinclair Lewis was born in Sauk Center, Minnesota. Lewis uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930. His best-known works of social satire were Main Street, and It Can Happen Here, and Babbitt. Yet for all his renown and wealth, Lewis ended up dying in Rome of alcoholism. Upon his death in 1951, he was cremated, and his ashes um, were sent to Rome's U.S. Embassy for for disposition. One morning, a, a visitor noticed a worker there in the U.S. Embassy on her knees with a dustpan and broom. Next to her was an overturned urn. When asked what she was doing, she replied nonchalantly, sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. (laughs) That's a terribly sad story, isn't it? But just for a moment, focus on those words. Sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. Because when we do, what we realize is that the abject futility of the human experience outside of its soul and its relationship to God, our creator. That's why it's important for us to know the very beginning of the Bible story. God wants you to know him. Your neighbors, God wants them to know him. As your creator, as your God, as your friend, God wants you to know his love for you. But then we have to ask, well, if that's the case, 
then why is life today so unlike the Garden of Eden? I mean, why do we have incidences like what took place at the Richfield's homecoming this past weekend? Ugly, painful, evil. Why is life so mixed up? What is the problem? Well, that brings us to the second key event, right? The fall. And here it is in the fall that we're introduced to Satan and to sin. Satan, being a created, invisible, angelic being, rebels against God and is determined to ruin God's beautiful creation. So Satan entering into a skate, into a snake, it tempts both Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve, they buy into Satan's lies. Eve says, listen, I'm going I'm to take some of this. It looks so good. And then she hands some of it to her husband, who, will you notice, <laughs> was right there with her. And he also eats. And look at the end of that verse again. Look at the end of that verse, where it says, um, she also gave some, or it says, she took some of its fruit and ate, and he ate. Did you catch that? I mean, just pause for a second. Think about that. What that is saying. That statement is so simple, isn't it? It's so unsensational, and yet it's also unthinkable and terrible what has happened. I mean, nothing will ever be the same again after that. Sin has now entered into the world from our perspective. I mean, it looks all so natural and so ho-hum and so undramatic as we read that sentence. But from God's perspective, I mean, it's cosmic. It's eternal. The fall. It costs us our innocence. It costs us our intimacy with God. It costs us our relationship with others. I mean, we know this part of the story so well, don't we? All of us. Sin has ruined God's perfect world. We can only begin to make sense of all that's going on in our world today and, and even here in Minneapolis and all the stuff that's going on. We can only begin to make sense of it when we understand this truth. We keep hoping, you know, that, that um, you know, there'll be some other way that we'll be able to shake free from the power of, of, of sin's grip. <laughs> but it's in us. And we cannot be free. We're lost. We are desperate. We're broken. But here's the good news. God's story is not finished yet. The climax is still to come, and it comes in this third key event, right? The story of the cross and redemption. Romans 5.8 tells us about why the cross is so significant. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. <laughs> the reason the cross is so significant is that it puts on God's display, uh, displays God's incredible love for us. How do you and I know that God loves us? Because Jesus died for us. And when Jesus died for us, at least <laughs> I want to point out two things took place. First of all, when Jesus went to the cross and died for us, Jesus released forgiveness. At the place called the skull, Jesus was thrown down upon that cross beam of that cross and his arms were stretched out, out, out wide and then spikes were driven through each of his wrists and then that crossbar was then raised up by soldiers and with Jesus dangling from it and, and, and Jesus fastened uh, uh, to a single standing post and then his feet were nailed probably with a single spike to that post and that crossbar on that crossbar, Jesus felt the pain and trauma, struggling to catch each, of, each breath. And Jesus, looking down from that cross, hanging there, looking down on those blood-spattered soldiers and that mocking crowd, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. <laughs> you say, well, what's the significance of that statement? Well, listen, when Jesus was on that cross, our sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of the human race reached its most horrible, awful, ugly expression. Over the years, one of the questions a lot of people have asked is, who's responsible for Jesus' death? And the Bible would say that we all are. Where does, Jesus, where does God's judgment fall on that day? The day of Jesus' death, it falls squarely on Jesus, doesn't it? And in that moment when Jesus prayed that famous prayer, Father, forgive them, Jesus was isolating himself under the judgment of God, his Father. His prayer included the priests who condemned him, the crowds who mocked him, the soldiers who crucified him, the disciples who deserted him, but let me remind you, it extended even further than that. It extended even to us, to you and, and to me. Jesus was saying, Father, when your judgment falls, don't let it fall on them. Let it fall on me. Let me be the lightning rod. Let me be the sacrifice. A second thing happened on that cross that day. Jesus conquered death. See, three days after his death, the resurrection proved that his trust in his father had not been misplaced. He had suffered death, but he had not been destroyed by it. He had let Satan do his worst, but had beaten Satan hands down. He had let darkness and lies and betrayal and religion have their way. But by commending his spirit to God, he returned from the fight, having defeated them all. Back in the beginning of God's story, we learned of the goodness of creation. The whole created order, we learned, was not some random 
event or our mistake, but rather it was God's decision. And that is good news. (laughs) It's good news because you and I have worth because God made us. He made us in his image. And then we learn that we sin, but listen, our sin, our brokenness has not destroyed God's first decision because God has not only created us, but he loves us. And so from the very beginning, his plan was to redeem us. In fact, God's soul loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, to release his forgiveness and to make death safe for us. He died to redeem us and to make us his sons and daughters. That's how great of love God has for you and for me, for all of us. E. Stanley Jones, a great evangelist in the last century, tells the story of a little boy who um, made a sailboat, you know, there in New York City. He made that sailboat, and, and uh, then he took that sailboat to the beautiful lake there in, in Central Park. He put his sailboat in Central Park Lake, and uh, that sailboat, well, it ended up being better at catching wind than it was at steering, and sure enough, that little boat this little boy made found its way right out of the middle of that Central Park Lake. A boy stood there watching that sailboat there, helpless, couldn't go out and get it, and finally had to leave. It was a sad moment. A couple days later, he was walking out on West 57th Street, and he saw his boat in a window of a pawn shop. Evidently, um, uh, someone had, uh, that boat had sailed to the other side of the lake, and somebody had found it and and, uh, took it and and sold it to the, the pawn shop. Boy, saw that in, in the window. And so he went in, and, and he uh, said to the pawn shop owner, hey, listen, I, I want to I, I buy that boat in the window. The man said, well, this is what it costs. The young boy said, well, don't sell it. Just, just hold on to it, save it, because I want to buy it. So he went home, and he got his money from his allowance and all the earnings he had made, and, and he came back to that pawn shop later that afternoon, and that boy, he, he, he bought that boat back from that pawn shop. And according to E. Stanley Jones, as the boy left that pawn shop, he said, little boat, you are mine. You are mine for two reasons. I made you, and I bought you. <laughs> you and I have both been made by God and we've been bought by God. He loves you that much. And if we are loved that much by God, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign over all things, I gotta ask you, you know, as you go through this world that's crazy and you never know what's gonna happen next, I gotta ask you, why would we ever be afraid? Why would we be afraid of anyone or anything on heaven or on earth? You don't need to be because you're in God's hands and he loves you and God's faithful. So let me give you the final and fourth key event of God's story, restoration. God's story began with God walking out onto the stage, announcing himself and creating the heavens and the earth. It will end with God creating a new heaven and a new earth. 
God's story began with a man and woman in paradise, and it will end with all of God's people uh, from every tribe and nation on earth in a restored paradise. The end of God's story in Revelation 21, we read these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. At the conclusion, catch this, God promises us a new world, a new heaven, and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away. That word new there, I got to tell you, it's very significant. Don't pass over it. It means that this new world will be wonderfully different. (laughs) Why? Well, one reason is because there'll be no more evil. I mean, the writer tells us there there that the sea was no more. I mean, why include that little detail? was because in the context of the book of Revelation, the sea is equal to Hades. It's the sea that gives rise to evil monsters who have stalked human history. But now that's all gone, it says. God has acted in such a way that, that evil has been sent off to destruction forever. And so this new heaven and new earth will be free from evil. Incredible. This world is also new because there will be no more death. Down in verse 4, that same chapter, chapter 21, verse 4, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. A new world where there's no more evil and no more death. I mean, think about that promise. Can you imagine a more wonderful place? And although it's all new, it also indicates it will be strangely familiar. I mean, the destiny of the believer is not to some dreamlike existence, you know, in, in, in some place uh, uh, like a spiritual uh, never-never land. <laughs> um, it's not just us hanging around in some clouds, you know, strumming some uh, harp. Um, no, what's promised is a new earth. This planet, refurbished and Restored and recreated with all of its beauty. <laughs> in fact, Paul says in Romans 8.21 that this creation, this earth will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought in a glorious freedom of the children of God. This new world, this new place that God prepared for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will be beyond anything we've ever thought of or imagined. I mean, that's the hope that we have each day as you go out into the world. That's the hope that you carry with it. That's the good news of God's story. It's God's story in four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In Luke chapter 10, we find a very interesting statement by Jesus. Jesus' followers have just return from going out uh, from in the towns and villages, uh, healing people and sharing the good news of God's story. They're all excited as they come back to Jesus. I mean, they're full of joy, Scripture says, because of what they saw happen and, and because of their huge success. And yet Jesus says this. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, don't celebrate because of your success. No, rather rejoice because you have salvation. Rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. 
Rejoice because you have a true and everlasting relationship with God. (laughs) See, Jesus tells his disciples in that ancient world, and he tells us who are Christ's followers today who live in this modern world, you are blessed. You are blessed because you are personally related to me. Celebrate that. You've been shaped by God's story. Celebrate that. And with this blessing comes a responsibility, a responsibility to share this good news story everywhere you can, anytime you can. Listen, if we know God's story and have experienced the blessing of his story changing us and shaping us, God is calling us to share his story with others. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, let me suggest a pattern that I have found to be very helpful. In fact, um, it's a pattern that uh, um, many of our students have learned to use um, over the years. Um, And it's a a pattern I think you'll find, in fact, in your bulletins on this uh, little card. You'll see this diagram here. Start with prayer. That's where you start. In the Gospels, we see um, Jesus oftentimes getting alone with his father in prayer, right? He knew how important it was to talk to God about people before he talked to people about God. Catch that order, okay? And the same is true for us. When we start praying for the people of God that God has put into our lives, in our sphere of influence, it prepares their hearts to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it prepares us to be ready when God prompts us or nudges us to share. Start with prayer. Second, care. Jesus also modeled how important it is to care for people's needs. Um, I mean, you read in the Gospels how Jesus healed the sick and fed the hungry and helped the hurting. In the same way, we must love those we are trying to reach. We do this by investing in them, by listening to them. This doesn't mean that they become a project. This means you build a relationship with them. You genuinely care for them, get to know what's happening in their lives, do things with them, care. Third, Share. After prayer and care, then lovingly share with them. Share with them God's story and how God's story has impacted your life and shaped your life. And then you invite them to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, when we invite someone to trust their lives in the hands of of Jesus Christ, I gotta tell you, we are inviting them to make the biggest and, and, and most significant and best decision of their lives. Right? And if they say no, (laughs) what do you do? Well, what you do is you go back to prayer and care and wait for another time when you might be able to share. Listen, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to ask you to think of four people. you got the lines right here in your cards. I'm going to give you some time this morning. I don't want you just walking out of here saying, oh, that's a neat idea. I don't think of four friends, four family members, four people in your life that you might be able to begin to pray for, who you might care for. 
and then share God's story with. Four friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, who you can intentionally begin to pray for and then care and then share. So I'm gonna give you some time right now. Next couple minutes, take some time, write down their names right here in the cards. Maybe ask God who he wants you to put on that card. What names he might have you put there. For some, it might be hard to come up with four names. Others, it might be hard to (laughs) eliminate down to just the four names. might God put on your heart, your soul to be praying for? It doesn't have to end after this morning. You'll be praying for these names, these friends, coworkers, fellow students, family members. Not just this next week, but this next six months, this next year. The rest of the time you have a relationship with them. Continue praying. Can I tell you something that everything that we've done today here will be done, it's going to be done better in heaven. Apologies to Pastor Paul, but the music will be better in heaven. (laughs) Our worship will be better in heaven. Certainly the sermon will be better in heaven. (laughs) There's only one thing you can do better here than we can 
in heaven. And then I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not know him. Prayer, care, share. Jesus' mission for all of us, those of us who have been shaped by his story, is to share that story everywhere you can, anytime you can, with a servant's heart and a serious mind because the stakes are so very, very high. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the good news of your story. The good news of salvation, the good news of redemption, the good news of your love for us since your son, Jesus Christ, to the cross for us so we might be forgiven. Lord, help us have the courage not only to write down four names, not only to pray for those four names and care for them, but when the time is right to be able to share, God, what you have done in our lives with them. We pray this, Lord, in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.